what I'll be trying to do this morning is basically to lay a foundation on which uh, the rest of the conference will be built upon. So I'm just laying the foundation, which means it will be sort of like a very uh, broad overview of the subject. It may not go too deep at certain points, and I may go too deep. I may go deep at certain points, but it's meant to be uh, a foundation for every other thing we're talking about today and also tomorrow, which is our missions Sunday. And um, I have divided the talk into two. And in the first place, I'll try to discuss with us problems or the problem. And what I'll be doing is basically to do a sort of diagnosis, trying to say, OK, this is the problem. What is the problem? How do we identify the problem if there is a problem? Should we be concerned if there is a problem? And what kind of concern should we have? And what would that concern look like? So that's the first part of my, my talk this morning. And the second part will be the panacea, or the medicine, the medication. So if we agree, when we are done with the first part, that there is a problem, the question is, what is the solution to the problem? And I would, for this talk, anchor everything I'll be saying from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, so if you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, I will read from verse 16 to verse 20. That's our anchor this morning, Matthew chapter 28, from verse 16 to verse 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's read it one more time, shall we? Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our Father, we ask this morning that you'll be present to bless us. And that as we consider these words, and as we consider this subject, 
you would walk in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to give us understanding into these things and even to spur us into action, into necessary action. In Jesus' name we pray. So the problem. One of the fascinating stories, or one of the stories I found to be the most fascinating in the history of wars is the story of a man by the name of Hiro Onada. Already you may already guess that Hiro is the name of a Japanese man. Hiro Onada was a soldier who fought in the Second World War. So to give us a bit of background, the Second World War was a war that started in September of 1939 by a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was the Führer of Germany. He was the supreme leader of Germany. And on the 1st of September, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. And from then on, things spiraled out of control, and there was a war that involved at least 30 countries. That's why it's called the World War. And it lasted from 1939 to 1945. And when the war began to develop and open up, it became about two sides. On the one hand, we had those that were known as the Axis powers. So the Axis powers was made up of Japan, was made up of Germany, and was made up of Italy. And then on the other hand, we had what they called the Allied powers. That was made up of the UK and France, the US, and the Soviet Union, what used to be then called the USSR. And this war went on for five years plus, And there was so much casualty in the world. Now this man, whose story I say is fascinating, was stationed to an island in the Philippines in 1945. That was the year the world ended, the war ended. And he went to the Philippines. And he had marching orders, which was, you are supposed to ensure that the US Army will not come and make a base on that island. And so he went there. He failed, of course. He was a junior soldier. He failed, and the US took over the island. A few months down the line, Pearl Harbor happened. Um, the attack on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened, and the war ended. But guess what? This man had no idea that the war had ended. And for 29 years, from 1945 to 1974, this man, alongside three other Japanese soldiers, were fighting a war that had ended. And some of us may ask, how is it possible for somebody to fight such a war that had ended? Is it that he did not hear any news? Well, it was 1945. So he probably did, he did not have a mobile phone. There was no internet. There was no WhatsApp. There was no Twitter. He couldn't see what was happening in the world. So he believed that the war was still going on. But how did all this play out? Two months after the war, the four men, Hiro and three other, the three other soldiers, they found a leaflet somewhere saying the war had ended. So they took it and they investigated it, they checked it, and they said it's not possible. This is, a fake, this is fake news. And six months after the war had ended, 
the Japanese guys began to fly around that area, dropping pamphlets, leaflets, saying the war has ended. The war has ended. Everybody should go home. The men looked at it and they said, ah, it's not possible. This is not true. Then five years later, in 1950, one of the soldiers got tired of the whole thing and just left the other three guys. And he left them. In 1952, they began to send messages from their families back home. So their families will write messages, wives and children and mother and father, and they will fly and throw the, this thing down to the island. And they will look at it and say, no, it's not possible. This is the work of the US, the UK, and all of these guys. In 1954, there were three soldiers. One died, remaining two soldiers. In 1972, the other soldier died, and it remained this one man, Hiro Oneda. In 1974, a Japanese man happened to be moving around the area doing a kind of world expedition, and he found this man, and they became friends. And he told him, what has ended? What has ended? He said, you are my friend, but I don't believe you. So what this man did was he went back to Japan and found the immediate commander of Hiro. And the immediate commander, who the war has ended for 29 years, there's no war again, who was now selling books, closed his shop, traveled to Japan, traveled to the Philippines, and relieved the man of his duties. The point I'm trying to make is this, in discussing the problem before us, is that it is important to know what you are doing, to know what we are doing as people. To put it another way, it is important to know what we ought to be doing. And in fact, I would go as far as saying that it is dangerous when we don't know what our mission is as individuals. It is dangerous when we don't know what we ought to be doing. This man was not neutral. In 29 years, he killed police officers. He killed innocent civilians. He caused destruction. He suffered harm to his body, to his health. He suffered, caused harm to his, his family back home in Japan. Now let me make the application to us. It is a most pitiful thing and a dangerous thing if we as the church do not know what we ought to be doing. It is dangerous. It is not a, an affair that whether we know or we don't know does not matter. It is dangerous. Just as a soldier who did not know what he ought to be doing caused harm, when the church of Christ does not know what it ought to be doing, there's going to be a lot of harm. Now, when you look at the statistics today, it is not hard to come to a conclusion that there is great gospel advance in the world. It is not difficult. Globally, especially when you look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Look at the statistics. If you look at the statistics, you would come to the conclusion that we are doing fine as a church, and that the gospel is advancing into this world. Consider these stats that I present to you. In, 19, in 1800, which was about 300 years ago, 1% of Protestant Christians lived outside Europe and North America. Now I must explain what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make. Roman Catholicism as a system is not Christian. So I am not talking about Roman Catholics as a system. It is not Christian. I'm talking about Protestantism, which is basically the system that holds onto faith in Jesus Christ 
as the way of salvation minus works. In 1800, only 1% of Protestant Christians around the world lived outside Europe and outside North America. When I say North America now, we're talking about the American colonies, right? Which is now the United States of America. 100 years down the line, 10% of Christians worldwide, Protestant Christians, lived outside Europe and North America. And as of 2023, over 60% of Protestant Christians live outside Europe and North America. According to these statistics, we are doing well. The church is missional. The gospel is advancing. Because if you have 60% outside, that means you're saying more than half of Christians, Protestant Christians, are outside the US, uh, Canada, and Europe. In fact, some of the statisticians, are, they are saying that by the year 2050, there will be a huge missionary flow from Africa to the West. They came to us. Now we have to go back to them. Let me put it in numbers again. In 1900, you had just 9 million Christians across Africa. Today, as of 2023, we have over half a million, half a billion rather, Christians across Africa. The number is at 685 million. In Asia, 100 years ago, we had 2 million. Today, the number stands at 383 million. In Latin America, that is Brazil, Argentina, it was just about 50,000 100 years ago. Today, it's 100 million. What does this mean? There are more people going to church, today than a hundred years ago. There are more churches, in fact, in existence than a hundred years ago. There are more pastors. There is more, there is more, there is more. We are doing fine, are we not? However, when you closely investigate this growth, you would find that this growth is the proverbial a mile wide and an inch deep. Come to Africa. Much of what we call Protestant Christianity or Biblical Christianity, much of what we call Christianity in Africa is basically syncretism. Animism and syncretism. So what are these two words? Animism is basically the idea that spirits are moved into objects. And a spirit can possess this stand here, can possess this camera, can possess all of these things, and then the spirits are using all of these things to work against the good of Christians. And syncretism, which is basically that we will take Christianity and we will take our African uh, religion and mix them together. Look across the country. In the north, in certain parts, it's almost difficult to differentiate between Christianity and Islam. You have what people have called Chrislam. There is, after all, no difference. So that, in fact, some Christians pray towards Mecca. In the western part of this country, you are almost confused when you come to a church because the pastor is basically a pseudo Ifa priest. So the kind of things you would have heard in a shrine a hundred years ago are the kind of things you hear in church. And then there is an import of African traditional religion into the church. In the eastern part of this country, we have religionized the festivals, the New Year festivals, all of those things have been given a Christian name. So you do all of these things together. And then this is the problem. 
That despite the fact that the numbers show that things are going well, things are not going well as they, as they seem. At the surface level, it seems as though, oh, the church is growing. We have a lot of people. We have millions. But there's a problem. What is the cause of these problems? What is the cause of these aberrations? What is the cause of this Christianity that seems to be thriving, but doesn't seem to be thriving in accordance with the scripture? And I think the cause of it is that we are failing to ask ourselves the question, what is the aim of the church? For what reason does the church exist? What is the purpose of the church? What is the mandate? What is the thing that the church ought to be doing? Because as long as the church does other things, as long as the church does not understand the main thing, and the church is engaged in so many things, we will continue to have this problem. Some people tell us that the reason why the church exists is to fight social justice. So that, because normally in this world, you will have unfair distribution of power, unfair distribution of privileges, unfair distribution of resources. And so the church should be at the forefront of social justice. So whenever, let me use an example from the US, whenever a white man kills a black man, for instance, the church should be foremost. The church should be on the streets fighting for social justice. And some say the church is meant to make life better. That the reason why the church exists is so that the lives of people will be better. You've heard this before. When the missionaries came, they built free schools. Why is it that the average Christian cannot attend Covenant University? And inside the mind of that person, the reason why the church should exist is to build free schools, build good roads, provide health care. After all, that's what the missionaries did. Some people also seem to think that the purpose why the church is in existence is so that the church will dominate the world. And I see two flavors of this. The first flavor happened in the 11th to 13th century in what we've come to know as the Christian Crusades. When the church took arms to fight, that is that the Pope then, Pope Urban, and some of the other popes after him, for over 200 years, took it upon themselves to arm themselves and fight. And there were many reasons why they fought. But one reason that was in their head was if we capture the Holy Land, which was at that time in Muslim occupation, Jerusalem, then the gospel will advance. So we have to capture it. And then when we capture it, we'll be able to influence the Jews and the Muslims to be converted. And today, that has taken a different flavor. You must have heard of the seven mountains. That the reason why the church exists is to capture the seven mountains. The church is meant to dominate the seven mountains. The mountain of religion, the mountain of family, the mountain of education, the mountain of government, the mountain of media, the mountain of arts and entertainment, and the mountain of business. That that's what the church should be doing. And so we give it a fancy name. We say it is the kingdom mandate. That is what the church should be doing. But some people think that the, the reason why the church exists is to enforce some kind of morality. So that if there's a church in this area, drinking should stop. If there's a church in this area, prostitution should stop. If the church is doing the work well, the church should reach out to all these people and clear the streets. That's the work of the church. And even some people give themselves their own mission. There's a popular church in Nigeria that has something they call the mandate. And the mandate apparently is what God has told the man 
That is the purpose of the church or his church. What he claims God told him is the purpose of the church. Now, are all of these things bad? Am I saying this morning that it's bad to pursue social justice? It's bad to be influential? It's bad to attempt at least to transform culture? No, these are not bad. In fact, a lot of these things are biblical. The Bible is clear that God cares about injustice. The Bible is clear that when election is rigged, God cares about it. The Bible is clear that when voters are not allowed to vote and they are disenfranchised, God cares about it. When people are racially abused, God cares about injustice. And so Christians should care about any kind of injustice. To quote John Piper, Christians should care about every kind of suffering that we see in the world. And so the Christians should attempt to make things better. And a lot of these things by necessity will be seen in the life of the Christian. That if a man is saved by necessity, he will try to enforce justice and equity. If a man is saved by necessity, he will do well by his neighbor. A man who is saved, properly saved, will not sit by while the gutter in front of his house is blocked and people's houses are being flooded. No, he will take a shovel and clear it up to make the lives of everybody in the community better. So the Bible does not forbid these things. However, the question is, what is the primary purpose of the church? These things are good. But the problem is that over time, they have become the primary purpose of the church. What is the church supposed to be doing as a church? I'm not asking what is a Christian supposed to be doing. That's a different question. Because when we talk about the Christian, we talk about vocation. God may call you into a full-time ministry. God may call you into the arts and entertainment, into education, into business. God may call you vocationally into all of these things. But what is the church meant to be doing as the church? Because all of these things cannot be the purpose of the church. And I'll say up front, as we begin to consider the, the, the solution, I would say that whatever the church is going to be doing is going to be unique. Whatever the purpose of the church is going to be, it is going to be something that only the church can accomplish. It is not something that Jeff Bezos can do. It is not something that Elon Musk can do. It is not something that Bill Gates can do. The church is not here to fight malaria. It is not here to make internet better for people. That's not the purpose of the church. According to the Bible, the purpose of the church is summarized in what we have come to know as the Great Commission. The purpose of the church, the aim, the mission, what the church is meant to be doing is given to the church in what we have come to know as the Great Commission. Now, the Bible does not call this the Great Commission. We don't even know who, who framed that thing called the Great Commission. We know that it was popularized by the missionary, Hudson Taylor, who wrote a lot about it and spoke a lot about it, and that's how it found its way. So if you're reading your Bible and you're using the ESV and the heading is the Great Commission, that heading is not inspired. It was added by the translators to sort of explain what the church has come to know universally as the Great Commission. So this is the goal of the church. And until we understand this goal and pursue this goal, the church cannot be healthy. I am going to argue even this morning that the reason why we have so much on health and disaster in the church is because the church has left what it is meant to be doing. 
So, on what basis should we say this is the goal? Should we just come to a passage of scripture and say, oh, I like Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, hence it is the purpose of the church? One of the reasons why I'm convinced that this is the goal of the church, the aim of the church, is the amount of reduplication of this great commission. All of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this great commission in different ways. That is, after Jesus had died and resurrected, post-resurrection and pre-ascension, Jesus gave this great commission to the church. So you can find it, for instance, in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. You can find it in Luke chapter 24, from 44 to 49. You can find it in John chapter 20, verse 21. And you can find it even in the book of Acts. Before Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you can find the great commission. So this is one of the reasons why I believe this is the goal. The fact that Jesus continued to emphasize this after he resurrected points us to the fact that this is, this is really, really important. And if you're a Bible student, you know that when you are reading your Bible and something appears over and over and over again, there's a reason why. Why it appears over and over and over again. That's one reason. Another reason I think it is the goal, why I think it's so important is that this great commission in the Great Commission are the last words of Jesus to his people. We know the, important of last, the importance of last words. When a man is about to die, for example, the Bible tells us when Jacob was about to die, what did he do? He called the sons. And whatever Jacob spoke about his sons, whatever he said concerning his sons, provided the basis of whatever we're going to see again from Exodus to Malachi. We know of the last words of Elijah before, he has, before God took him away. We know the last words of Moses, the last words of David. So there's an importance that is upon a man's last words. And the Great Commission, and these are the last words of Jesus to his church. But more than that, again, if you're going to study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, doing what we call biblical theology, you will find out that the Great Commission is all over the pages of the Bible. In a different form, of course, in the Old Testament. But it is all over the pages of the Bible. So the same words you see here, you see similar words in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham and tells Abraham to go, to go and do something. The difference, of course, is that while in the Old Testament, the command is for the nations to come and see, in the New Testament, the command now is for the church to go and tell, but it's still there. God seems to be doing something through his people to the nations. And finally, when you look at the book of Acts closely, you know, one of the ways to know the purpose of a thing or what the church is meant to be doing is to look at what the church was doing when the church started meeting together as a Christian church. What was the church doing? Start from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, down to Acts chapter 28, the, the Great Commission. They were not building roads. That's instructive, is it not? They were not fighting all the injustices in the world. They were not trying to ensure that communities were reached. School should get to people. They were not doing all of those things. Now, again, I'm not saying these things are bad, but in the book of Acts, you will see that the early church understood the main thing. And the reason I believe why the early church was so effective in the book of Acts is that they understood it, not just understand it, or not just understanding it, they pursued the main thing for the church. 
the main theme is the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, we see three things. We see an assignment, an authority, and an assurance. We see the church's assignment based on Jesus' authority and filled by his assuring presence. So what is the main thing the church is supposed to do? The church has an assignment in verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the assignment of the church? If you look at the text, one of the things you would find is that there are many verbs in the text. What is a verb? A verb is an action word or a doing word, and a verb exists in different tenses. You can find uh, present tense, past tense, past participle, and all of those things. So let's look at the text again. The first verb we find is the verb go, therefore, and second verb, make, disciples of all nations. Third verb, baptizing. By the way, I'm still in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The third verb, baptizing, and in verse 20, the fourth verb, teaching. However, in the original text, there's just one main verb. There's one main verb and three supporting verbs, which means when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, there was one thing that stood out to them in their heads, and there were three things that were meant to support this one thing. What is the one thing? Make disciples of all nations. The assignment of the church from Jesus is to make disciples of all nations. So what is the function of the three verbs? The three verbs are meant to show us how we'll make disciples of all nations. Number one, going. Two, baptizing. And three, teaching. I think it is instructive that Jesus tells the church to make disciples and not to just evangelize. There's a difference. Jesus did not say, now I'm leaving you, do evangelism. Jesus did not even say, now I am leaving you, make converts, convert people. Jesus did not say, I'm leaving you, get people into the church so that the church will be influential, get all of these things. No, Jesus says, I am leaving you and my task to you is to make disciples. A disciple is basically a student. But a disciple is not just a student, the way a student goes to the university, and many of the students now don't know when they will go back to school, because we have election, we have census, and you are cut off from your lecturers. No, no, that's not. A disciple is a student that learns life on life. A disciple is a follower. And we see this in the life of Jesus. When Jesus made disciples, what did they do? Did they meet once a week for classes? No. They were walking with Jesus, living with Jesus, following Jesus, every day of their lives. That's what it means to be a disciple. We have a very flawed view of missions today. Very flawed. And what is that? We think missions is just preaching. Or we think the Great Commission is just preaching. So when you ask somebody, how do you fulfill the Great Commission? The question is, preach the gospel. Yes, preach the gospel. 
of course, it's part of it, but is that all? Jesus could have said, now I am leaving you be preaching the gospel. Instead, Jesus says, make disciples. Missions, then, is not just preaching the gospel. Much of the problems we have today in the church is that people have interpreted missions to mean the preaching of the gospel. So what do you do? Rehabunku is coming to town. Let's get redemption camp available for him. And let's gather people from all across Lagos, Ogun, everywhere in the southwest, and let's fill up the stadium. So Rehabunku comes, and he preaches, and he does some things. Some things happen. People are shouting. People are jumping. The next day, Bunky is on a flight back to CFAN headquarters. And that's all. And people say, this is the Great Commission. No, it's not the Great Commission. Or we find a very influential preacher who can attract crowds, whether it's a Selman of today, or an Arome of today, or an Adeboye of today, or an Ayodipo of today, and we organize a big program. One was organized last year across major cities in, in this country. And then you see, you have a drone camera which will go up in the sky, and then you see people in their thousands. And at the end of the day, we say, we are fulfilling the Great Commissions. No, not, not, not the Great Commission. That's not the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Because according to Jesus, the purpose of the church is to be making disciples. And I want us to look at an episode in the life of Paul where we can see how Paul went about this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. What does this look like? Acts chapter 14 I will read from verse 19 to 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around Paul, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So let's look at some of the activities of Paul. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So the first thing Paul does when he goes on a missionary journey or he does anything in missions is to preach the gospel. But that's not the only thing Paul does. I'm just using this text as an example. You will see it repeated throughout the missionary journeys of Paul. So the first thing we see is initial evangelism, preaching to unbelievers. But look at verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is not separate from the work of missions. Paul is nurturing existing churches. So what Paul does is, Paul comes to a place, he preaches, he moves on. But he doesn't move on, he comes back to the place. Paul doesn't just come once in 10 years to Lagos and is nowhere to be found. He doesn't just come to a church doing a big program, gather people, and there's nowhere to be found. He doesn't just organize a crusade. Paul goes back to strengthen the churches that he has planted. Look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul will always establish local church leadership. And if these things are not in place, missions is not complete. Guess what has happened? We've picked, some people have picked the first one. Some people have picked the second one. Prior church ministries. 
which are really supposed to support the church. But what do parachurch ministries do? They provide curriculum, they go to places, they do things, they don't sit down in one place, and they are gone. Ah, that's not complete. That's not complete. Until these things are seen, missions is not complete. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that what the church should be doing instead of short-term missions is long-term missions work. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 28. You know, we have an obsession with numbers in our days. And much of what people call missionary activities is just, okay, come to a place, preach, 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 preach. Don't forget to take pictures. Don't go with a camera that is like the beaver's machine. Go with a proper camera that when you snap a person and you zoom in, you will see the pimples on the person's face. And so snap these pictures, prepare a report, join everything together and send it to your supporters so that your support money next month will come. That's what people, a lot of people call missions. Or, as you are doing it, hope you have a Facebook account. You have a Twitter account. I mean, you can't do ministry today without an Instagram account. So as you are doing it, be posting it. Pray for these people, brothers. I shared the gospel with them from the book of Matthew chapter 1, and two people came to believe, and you're done, you're done there. That's not biblical missions. Biblical missions is the making of disciples. Jesus says there are three steps to this making of disciples. What's the first step? He says go. Matthew chapter 28, back to our text, verse 19. He says the first step is to go. Going is the first step in the work of missions. And Jesus did not just say go. He says, go to all nations. Now, it would be bad for us to understand nations to mean Nigeria, Ghana, Burkina Faso, and maybe Algeria, and some of these places. That's not really what Jesus has in mind. At the, at, at the, at the, at the base of what the world communicates is groups. Groups. So you are preaching the gospel to all groups. All people groups, not nations. Now, how many nations do we have in Nigeria? We all know that Nigeria is not really a nation. And even if Nigeria is a nation, we have Yoruba nation. We have Igbo nation. We have the Hausa nation. We may have the Gala nation. We may have this nation, this nation, this nation. I'm not saying I'm not supporting one Nigeria. I'm saying to understand this text, you have to think along that line of groups. You have to think that when Jesus is saying, go to all nations, he's not saying Nigeria. Instead, he's saying something like, go to the Yoruba nation, go to the Igbo nation, go to the Hausa nation, go to the Fulani nation, go to groups. He's just talking about groups here. So when we see nations, we should think a group of people who are sharing a common language or a culture. So which means, that the work of missions is still to be done in Nigeria. Because we have 400 nations, over 400 nations. And truth be told, not all of these 400 nations have been properly reached. So we go. Implied in that going is that we are going with the gospel, of course. The second step is, having gotten believers, we baptize them. They make a public declaration of faith. And of course, implicit in that is that they become part of a church. Implicit in baptism is that they become associated with a church. That's the second step. And the third step, Jesus said, is we teach them to follow Christ. Ongoing teaching, nurturing. 
You go to a place, preach the gospel and leave. What happens to those people? You say the Holy Spirit will teach them. Oh, really? Because the Holy Spirit taught you. Teach them how to love. Teach them the Bible. Look at Paul's example. So after Paul planted all, all the churches, he planted some churches at Galatia, he was at Ephesus, Paul did not say, now I leave you to the Holy Spirit to teach you, and I am gone. Paul constantly wrote letters back to them. Paul sent Timothy to churches. He sent Titus to churches. He wrote letters sending, Paul worked with so many men, ensuring that these churches are taught what the right thing is doing. Our problems come from the fact that we have forgotten what the Great Commission really is. Or we have misunderstood it. It's something else. It doesn't look like what Jesus is saying here in this text. And this is not the first time it is happening. It has happened over the history of the church. There's a man called William Carey, who many regard as a father of modern missions. In 1787, Carey was ordained as a Baptist pastor and he was just 26 years old. So what happened after his ordination was he became part of a pastoral fraternal. Fraternal is where pastors, I mean, pastoral fraternal, pastors come together, ministers come together. They talk about the gospel. They talk about the work of God in their churches. They talk about what God is doing, some of their challenges, and they pray together. And so Carrie automatically just, as he was ordained, he joined this group of ministers who met frequently. I think it was weekly. But the group was made mainly of old ministers, so there were a lot of gray-haired men. And so Carrie was always quiet. So one day, one of the old men now said, ah, okay, our next meeting, one of you young boys share with us something that the Lord is laying upon your heart. Unknown to the man, Carrie had been reading the New Testament, and he had become convinced that the Great Commission was not done. That is, it has not finished, by the way. Let me address this misconception today that the Great Commission was given to the apostles and the eleven only. Some of you might be shocked to hear that, but that is actually a, a teaching that is thriving in certain parts today. That the church has no business with the Great Commission. And they tell you, look at the text. It was the eleven disciples. Okay, well, if it was eleven disciples, did Paul fulfill the Great Commission? Was Paul part of this eleven? Or it was just 11 disciples. Who were the people Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 1? Paul says there were some who were advancing the gospel. Whether it was out of goodwill, out of ill will. Who, who, who was Paul talking about? Or in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul was talking about the, the armor of faith. And he talks about having our feet shod with the gospel of peace. Ah, is that not reminiscent of what Jesus told his disciples to go do, taking the gospel to places? Or in 1 Thessalonians, when Paul was talking about the church at Thessalonica, Paul said, your faith has sounded out to all Macedonia and Achaia. So what was Paul saying? If not that these people, these Christians, were fulfilling the Great Commission. So William Carey was reading the Bible and he said, I, I don't really believe that this is what's happening, that the Great Commission has been fulfilled. And so the meeting came. And Carrie stood up to present his presentation to the pastor fraternal. And he says that he believes that God has asked the church to go because he had a burden in his heart for India. Go and preach the gospel and baptize and, and plant churches and all of these things. And the old man looked at him and said, young man, you know nothing. God does not need man. The Great Commission has been finished. 
He says, you are a miserable enthusiast. And Carrie went back thinking about his life. Am I really a miserable enthusiast? And he went back, studied for a few months, for many months, wrote a book, a grand text. And a few years, Carrie found himself in India. Labored for seven years without a convert. But if you go to India today, Carrie's name has not been forgotten in a largely Hindu nation. The church, this is the plan. The old man said, you don't know God's plan. God has a plan for all of these people. Why should people risk their lives, leave their churches, leave their homes, and go preach the gospel somewhere? God has a plan. You don't know God. Leave it. It, The the disciples, apostles have done it. This is the assignment of the church for every age. This is the assignment. And this assignment is based on an authority. In verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And think of authority as power or right. And the question, of course, is that, is it that Jesus did not have authority before now? No, Jesus had authority. He had authority, I mean, the Bible tells us, in fact, Matthew tells us in Matthew 7 that he taught as one with authority. In Matthew 18, he was healing with authority. He had authority to forgive sins in Matthew chapter 9. He even had authority over Satan and demons. So Jesus had authority. So what authority is Jesus talking about? I believe the authority he's talking about is what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. That God has given him a name. So that Jesus is now enthroned. The lamb has come. He has suffered. He has paid the price. And now he has the authority as a mediator. Which means now he has the authority to redeem his people to defend them, to save them, to protect them from their enemies. We looked at this a few months ago when we were studying the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. As a mediator, he has authority. And Jesus is saying, this is an absolute authority. That all things in heaven and earth have authority over everything. There's nothing that Jesus does not have authority over. Therefore, we should fulfill the Great Commission. You see, the Great Commission is not to be fulfilled because we have power on our own. Sometimes when we are scared to fulfill the Great Commission or go out, some of us, God may be laying upon our house to be missionaries and we are scared. We think, well, I don't know too much. I don't have too much abilities. I don't have too much support. What if I go there and there is no money? I don't have this, I don't have that. In myself, I have nothing. And Jesus is saying, the reason you fulfill the Great Commission is because I have been given all authority. Jesus, having died and resurrected, is now crowned Lord. I have been given all authority. Therefore, go into the world. What is a negative illustration? Reminds me of the event that happened in Acts 19 with the sons of Sceva. So these men, we are told, were Jewish exorcists. And they went and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached. And the demons told them, Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? Now, what is happening there? I think what is happening is that the sons of Sceva did not have authority. Paul had authority. Not authority in himself, but the authority that Jesus had given to him 
in his name. The sons of Sceva were not in the church. So they could not do anything when it comes to gospel work. But to his church, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, and therefore, you can go into any land. I say, I come in the name of Jesus Christ. These demons, these shrines, I come in the name of Jesus Christ. This stronghold of Islam, this stronghold of animism, African traditional religion, I come in the name of Jesus Christ because he has all authority. And I am going to preach the gospel and do the work of the gospel, not because of anything in me. I don't need to have a degree. William Carey, the father of modern missions, stopped school at 12. He didn't have a, he didn't, he didn't go, he was basically a half-educated man. There was no money. So who was, what was he doing? He was a shoemaker. As, as a shoemaker, he had a love for languages. So he taught himself Greek as a shoemaker. So what does he do? As he's doing the shoe, he puts the book in front of him. And as he's doing the shoe, he's learning Greek. He taught himself Dutch. He taught himself Hebrew. He taught himself Latin. And when he got to India, he taught himself Bengali. And then he learned Sanskrit, which was an old Indian language. But this was a man who did not go to school. Had nothing. A poor man. He could not even, he could not even feed his family. Now, when I say he couldn't feed his family, we think maybe, no, he was not earning anything that could feed his family. In fact, one time, his wife's name was Dolly, and they lost a child. And his mother came to help with the other children and to comfort them. And when his own mother came, he said, my son, you are poor. You are, these conditions you are living in. He said, she didn't know how bad it was until she came. But why do we, on what basis do we go? Not because we have money. Not because we have money. You know, you've heard that phrase, right? That the name of Jesus is heavy. You need money to carry it. Oh, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. The story of Acts is that people, because they had the name of Jesus, and they were speaking and walking based on the authority that had been given to him, they did wonders for Christ. They preached the gospel. Even in the hardest of places. Of course, they lost their lives, but they preached the gospel. They preached the gospel. And so Jesus is saying, go do this thing because I have authority. You have the right. Step into any place. Step into any place. But Jesus also tells us, do this because I am with you always. Christ assures us of his presence. So Jesus is not just assuring the church of his authority, but also of his presence. Now, guess what? This is not a promise. The famous preacher, Campbell Morgan, once preached on this text, and he said, what a wonderful promise that Jesus promises to be with his people forever. And as he finished, a group of women met him and said, Preacher, this is not a promise. This is a fact. It's not a promise. Jesus is saying, I am with you. Go fulfill the Great Commission. Not, go fulfill the Great Commission because I will be with you as you are going. No, I am already with you. Whether you are feeling it or not, I am with you. As my church, I am with you. 
And this is tied to the Great Commission. Jesus is saying, I am with you. Go fulfill the Great Commission. And then I ask the man and woman who say the Great Commission does not need to be fulfilled. Why does Jesus say to the end of the age? Because this is the work of the church. Christ will be with the church to the end of the age. And this is the work the church is supposed to be doing based upon the presence of Christ. Christ said, I'm with you. I'm with you. So why do we fear when Christ is with us? Why do we worry when Christ is with us? Why do we think? Why do we think that any place is outside the reach of Christ? Why do we think that there are some places in Kano, in Sokoto, in the core northern part of this country, that the gospel cannot be preached in? Why do we think even that there are places that the corruption and decadence is sin is so much and the gospel cannot be preached in? Jesus says, I am with you now. And I have given you the right to step into any place. That's a great commission. The problem is that this has ceased to be the mission today. It has ceased to be the mission. So we have now begun to major on the minors. We begin to major on the minors. Are, are the minors not good? They are good. But the job of the church is not to speak for a particular political candidate. And the job of a pastor is not to be sweating. That's not the job of the church. That's not the main thing. And the church is happy. <laughs> speak, speak to power. Oh no, that's not the job of the church. The main thing is go, make disciples, go, baptize them, go, teach them. So what is the biblical basis for missions? The biblical basis for missions is this. That missions is the aim and purpose of the church. This is what the church is meant to be doing. Now somebody might ask, as I come to a close, but is Jesus not talking about missionaries? I believe Pastor Butu will speak to that later in the other sessions about missionaries and why missionaries are a, different, a special group of people. Everybody is not a missionary. But Jesus is giving this to the church, which means it is the work of the church to do missions. And you have a lot of aberrations today. So a missionary society will say, I am not saying they are not doing good work. I am saying, according to the Bible, according to how I see it, in Acts chapter 13, it was the church that laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and said, go do the work of missions. And when almighty Paul had finished preaching and planting churches, guess what happened? Paul came back to the church. He said, Paul, are you not an apostle? You have authority. No, he came back to the church because it was the church that was doing the work of missions. The biblical basis for missions is that Jesus has given this as the primary purpose why the church is on the earth. And if we miss this, ah, there's trouble. We will not be surprised. We have sin criticism. We have animism. We have a manner of rubbish. We have prosperity gospel. All these aberrations are because the church has missed the main thing. Missions. And then don't forget, missions is not just preaching the gospel. Have plant churches. Have leaders. Have elders. Nurture the churches. That's biblical missions. And so the question you should be asking yourself as this meeting proceeds is, yeah, what is my place? 
What is God asking me to do? This is not a question of whether I am going to do. If I am in the church, then this is clearly what God is asking me to do as a member of his church. All of us will not go, but all of us are involved. Whether we are sending, whether we are praying, whether we are giving resources, writing, whether we are doing anything, this is the work of the church. I mean, the Lord grant that we'll take this task again in our day. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you take these words that we have heard, we plant it deep in our hearts. And even as we continue to listen to your word and to fellowship, you would really grant us understanding and stir up our hearts into faithful, fruitful, biblical action. In Jesus' name we pray.